And that's the fuel we, we, we run on, right? American runs on Duncan. The church runs on the love of God. It can't be anything else. You can't try to fuel your life by any other kind of love. Human love, including self-love, hear that. Human love, including self-love, is the wrong kind of fuel. It's like putting, it's like putting gasoline in a diesel engine. Just not going to work. But it's his love for us, his great, great love for us that not only keeps us going, but makes us thrive and makes us conquer and makes us live victorious. So we've got to know that by way of revelation. We've got to understand the depth of his love. And, and Paul said in a place, he said, it's with all the saints together that we comprehend the, len- the length and depth and breadth and height and width of his love. His love is so multidimensional. That's why we need each other. We have to live in community. We have to worship corporately in order to understand the depth of God's love for us. Because when we can rub shoulders and, and experience our human weaknesses and, and still realize together that, hey, if God loves that person, he probably maybe, maybe, maybe loves me, right? And then, and then we just realize, wow, we don't deserve the love that we have for each other, but we can have that love for each other because of the cross, because God's that merciful to us. So how can we not then be that merciful to each other? All right, are we good? Can y'all hear me on Facebook? Okay, good, good. Okay, Mark 5. Mark 5, starting in verse 21. My sermon today is noisy crowd wailing. (laughs) Noisy crowd wailing. (laughs) These are interesting times, aren't they? (laughs) I think this is going to be a pretty interesting week. So let's talk about this noisy crowd wailing. (laughs) Mark 5, verse 21, I'm reading in the New King James, Mark 5, 21. It says, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, He fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. Let me tell you something about this man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. So right there, there's one strike against him coming to Jesus and getting anything from Jesus because he belongs to the group of people who are anti-Jesus, right? He belongs with the group who killed Jesus, who put him on the cross. And why is that? Because they're, they're the religious, they uphold the religious traditions of the day, and this Messiah so-called Messiah to them is, is a threat to them, and he's so radical, he's upturning their religious system, saying that all their works, all their religious works and rituals are no good, are meaningless to God without a transformation of heart, and he's just turning everything inside out and upside down, and they don't like it. So Jairus is a part of this group. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He's in charge of all the, the synagogue worship and the services and the maintenance of the synagogue. 
And just remember, there's another time in Scripture where we see a Pharisee, a religious leader, coming to Jesus. And when does he have to come? He has to come by night, right? Because he can't be seen going to talk to Jesus and meeting with Jesus. So he has to go undercover. That's Nicodemus. So this man, Jairus, also a leader in the synagogue, you see, he's too desperate to come by night. He can't wait. He can't wait till nighttime to go meet with Jesus. He's desperate. So in the middle of the daylight, in front of this huge crowd, he comes in in a huge display of worship and humility and surrender. He bows at Jesus' feet and he begs for help. The other strike against him, getting anything from Jesus, not only is he a member of the group who's opposed to Jesus, He's not supposed to want anything to do with Jesus. But he's a good person. He's a very religious person, a very devout religious person. And by all ceremonial practices, this man is what they would have called clean. A clean record. Squeaky clean. In fact, part of his job, his ministry in the synagogue, is to help people offer sacrifices so that they can be atoned for, so that their uncleanness can be made clean. That's what he's involved in as leader of the synagogue, ruler of the synagogue. So two strikes against Jairus. He's technically opposed to Jesus. And in his mind and in the mind of his people, that's okay because they're good enough without Jesus. They're clean. They're good, squeaky clean, devoutly religious people. But even very good people, even very good people sometimes get desperate. And sometimes desperate people get desperate enough to come to Jesus. In spite of their goodness, in spite of their lifelong opposition to Jesus or anything Christian, sometimes even very good people who don't need the Lord get desperate. And sometimes even desperate people get desperate enough. See, one thing I've come to realize through life from observing others and observing myself is that just because you have a desperate situation in your life doesn't mean you're desperate yet. This is phenomenal to me. I see it all the time. I see it in my own life. Just because we have a desperate situation or circumstance in our life does not necessarily mean that we have ourselves actually become desperate enough to run to Jesus as our last hope and our only hope. You know, I've got I've got circumstances and things in my life right now that have made me realize, okay, I think I'm getting desperate enough. Like, these have been desperate situations, but I didn't know it. Now I'm realizing, okay, I'm getting desperate enough that now sometimes Netflix is taking a back burner to prayer, like face planting my face on the carpet because I'm desperate. I mean, we've always been, from the moment we were born into sin, on a trajectory toward eternal separation from God. We were desperate. 
We were born into a desperate situation called the human condition, but we don't know it. We didn't know it. And sometimes we can be the good, clean, righteous, devout, very good person and even come into a desperate time in our life but still not be desperate enough to let that make us fall at the feet of Jesus and complete surrender like we sing, wholly surrendered, wholly surrendered. But now Jairus has become desperate enough. His daughter's dying. He's desperate enough. His goodness, his good condition didn't hold him back from his now felt need for God. Let's read on verse 24. It says, Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Note that word. The original Greek is compress. These people were literally pushing against him. That's going to become meaningful in a minute. I know some of you know this account. Verse 25 says, A certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. That's a desperate situation. You have no more money for doctors, no health insurance, and they've actually made you worse. And this has been going on, this some kind of hemorrhaging has been going on for 12 years. Verse 27 says, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. There were two strikes against this woman. She was a woman. She was a second-class citizen in this culture and time. And what's worse than that is she was unclean. She was the dirty one. You know, she, according to the law of Moses, Jewish law, if you had, any, if you had even a woman in her normal monthly time of impurity was considered unclean during that time and had to wait a week afterward just to be cleansed and it had to go through the temple to certify that she, she was once again pure. This was a disease, a continuous flow of uncleanness. She was defiled. And you are not supposed to, if you were a good, devout Jew, touch her. You weren't supposed to touch her or let, dare let her touch you. Two strikes against her. We've got this man who's too good to need Jesus. And then we've got this woman who's too dirty, too defiled to get close to Jesus. But both of them have this in common. They're desperate. They're desperate. And they have both finally become desperate enough. See, you can have a condition of being too good for God, too good to feel your need for him, or you can also have a condition of being too bad to know that he wants you, that you can still come to God. 
Human goodness and human badness are both conditions that keep us far from God. And both of these people represented each of those, and they both became desperate. But let's see what happens. So she decides, you know, I, I'm, I'm defiled. I can't touch him. He certainly can't touch me. That breaks the Jewish, the Jewish law. You know, she's going to be toast if he knows she's even there trying to touch him. And so she figures if I can just touch his garment, maybe there's this loophole where God will heal me, even though I'm really taking a huge risk here and breaking religious law. So it says, verse 29, immediately when she touched Jesus' garment, the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Now, this is interesting. See, she could have just said, wow, I'm healed, and gone her way. And told everyone about it. And Mark would have gotten wind of it, perhaps. And then that's why we have this account. Could have happened that way. It says immediately she felt that she was healed. But what happens here? It says, Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around to the crowd and said, hey, who touched my clothes? He's wanting to bring attention to this for a very important reason. You see, because it wasn't about the method. If he had left this alone and kept going, she's going to go and tell everyone, hey, all you need to do is touch the hem of his garment. And when, then we've got the garment-touching denomination. But it's not about the method. It's about Jesus. It's about the person. It's about touching him. The power came from him, not his garment. And he wanted to make sure we understood this. So he said, who touched my clothes? Now, of course, that sounds crazy because remember... They're thronging him. Everyone's touching him. <laughs> they're, they're pressing in on him. They're crowding around him, right? He says, who touched my clothes? His disciples say to him, verse 31, you see the multitude thronging you? And you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman Fearing and trembling. And if you understand the cultural context, you understand the fearing and trembling. Knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus is completely defying religious tradition that says she's a woman, she's not worthy. She's unclean, she's not worthy. She's filthy, dirty, she's not worthy. He goes past all of that, blows it wide open, and he heals this woman because that's who he is. Remember, his great love for us. His great love for us. So verse 35 says, while he was still speaking. Now remember, Jairus is with him because they're on a mission. They're on their way to Jairus' house. 
Jairus sees all this, and you can just imagine the clock's ticking. His daughter's dying, and now this man's got to stop for a woman, and she's unclean. And he's got to stop and take the time for that while his daughter's dying, and every minute counts. His desperation has just become extra desperation. And so, verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, Jairus' house, and they said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now his desperation has turned to despair and hopelessness. It's too late. Too much time's been taken up. Now it's too late. And besides, if he even had a thought that Jesus could raise the dead, there's this other problem. His daughter's now a corpse. And not only do you not touch a woman or a defiled person, but you don't touch a corpse according to the law, the law of the Jewish law. Because that's unclean. So all hope is completely lost, and we don't, I don't know if we have a way of knowing if Jairus is aware that Jesus has raised this other woman's son from the dead. It was about a day's journey away. Uh, the, the woman of Nain, her son, they're parading him through the town and the funeral procession. You could read about that. I think maybe Luke 7, I'm not sure. The, the widow of Nain, her only, only man in her life she's got left, her son's dead, and, and Jesus raises him from the dead. But we don't know if Jairus is aware of that yet. We don't know the time frame necessarily. So Jairus is really, really now turning to despair and hopelessness upon this news that his daughter has died. And I wonder if he blames the delay in healing this defiled woman. We don't know what's going through his mind, but we do know that he's afraid because it says in verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid. You know why he was afraid, I believe? He didn't see any solution. This rabbi is not going to touch a corpse and get defiled and besides, how on earth now is he going to face the future with his little girl gone? He's afraid. He's afraid of the future. He's afraid of despair. He's afraid of hopelessness. He's just afraid of facing life with this huge loss. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. Only believe. And I want us to notice this morning there's a period right there after the word believe. Only believe. Jesus doesn't tell Jairus what he's going to do. He doesn't tell him when he's going to do it, where he's going to do it, how he's going to do it. He gives him no specifics. No specifics. He says, only believe. What is he saying? He's saying, Jairus, believe in me. That woman you just saw, that wasn't about touching my garment. She believed in me. And I had to make sure everyone understood that. Jairus, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you don't understand. Don't be afraid because you don't see the plan. Jairus, only believe. And he puts a period there because he's telling Jairus, your belief has to be in me. Our belief, people, 
dear ones. Our belief right now in January 2021 has to be in the who. Not in the when, not in the where, not in the how, not in the why, not in the what. Our belief, church, must be in the who right now. It must be in the who. It must be in God and God alone. I'm concerned, and, and I listen, I'll be talking more about this as the days go by, but look, I believe, I believe in, in the prophetic. I believe God can speak through his people, absolutely. But we've got to make sure that we are not putting too much faith in the words of a man. Our belief has to be in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus alone. God, God is powerful. He is mighty. The when and the who and the where and the why and the what right now are so jumbled and confused. And if we put our faith in that, we're going to be in trouble. We've got to put our faith in Jesus and God alone. So we said, and we and and, and and when you do that, then there's no need for fear. You see how Jesus made that connection. Don't be afraid, only believe. They go together. If you're in fear right now and trepidation and worry and anxiety over anything, it's because we need to check. Where our faith is? Where's my faith? Is it in, is it in some human's words? Is it in, is it in some headlines? <laughs> Where's our faith? So Jesus said to Jairus, Jairus, only believe. And again, he didn't tell him what he was going to do. So what's Jairus supposed to think? Believe what? Jesus is saying, believe in me. Just believe, Jairus. Just believe in me. And then it says this in verse 37. It says, and he, Jesus, permitted no one to follow him. Hear that phrase. Jesus didn't let anyone follow him. This is Jesus, the one who said, come follow me. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. John was the brother of James. He picked these three. Out of that huge crowd, he left them behind and said, it's just you three coming with me. Come on. Just you. Nobody else. You see, there are those who want God for his benefits. They treat him as a convenience store. And then there are those who want to partner with God and do what he does. But they know they can only do that if they follow closely and they go with him everywhere he goes, every step he takes, everything he does, they watch and they follow and they do likewise. And they spend time with him closely. There's a verse in Daniel 11:32 that says, those who know their God shall do exploits. Hear that. Those who know their God, know their God, those are the ones who do the exploits. So you can watch God from afar, and then you can be a, stay back and be a part of the crowd. And this is the noisy crowd wailing. That's how Matthew refers to them. <laughs> they got to see the miracle of the woman, and that was great. But they didn't get to go 
inside the house to see greater things and eventually turn and do them themselves. We see in Acts chapter 9, so Peter, James, and John, they're the ones that go in with Jesus into the house, into where the dead daughter is lying. Well, let's read what happens. But I want to say this. I just want to linger here for a minute. This is so important. God's not interested in a long-distance relationship any more than you and I are. And I think right now, in this moment in the history of, of our nation, but definitely in the history of our church, God is calling the church. He's calling out some Peter, James, and Johns in the church. He say, you come with me. We're going places. You want to see some amazing things? You're not going to see it if you're a part of the noisy crowd wailing. So just make a decision. It's up to you how close you want to follow. I tell people quite a bit. I say this to my kids. I've said it to people. People come to me. They complain about how, how bad things are and, and God's not answering their prayers. And then I, and then I realize, because I know, because I'm, I'm human too. Like, I get it. I, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm pointing the finger here. I know. It's like, how desperate am I? Like, what's your desperation threshold? How desperate do you and I need to get before we finally fall at Jesus' feet and 1,000% surrender to the point where he says, oh, now that's where I want you. You come with me. I've been waiting for you to get there. Now you come with me. You come with me. It's about time you leave the noisy crowd waiting. See, you can have as much of God as you want. Hear that. You can literally have as much of God as you want. He's got everything for you. I preached that a few weeks ago. He has everything. He's given you everything you need. But you can have as much of it as you want. And it has to do with knowing him. Those who know their God shall do exploits. So let's see what happens. He came to the house, verse 36, of the ruler of the synagogue, and he saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. Matthew says, he saw a noisy crowd wailing. Now, this is interesting. These are actually career mourners. They are hired to make this loud noise as a huge display of fake grief. I've actually seen this in real life. When I was in Haiti, when I was 18 years old, because a lot of developing countries have retained these ancient traditions, and when I was in Haiti in this very primitive village as a teenager, I remember being outside one day, and I hear this noisy crowd wailing. And I look, and there's this funeral procession, and they've got this very uh, homespun coffin, and they're carrying it through the streets, and there's these large crowd, mostly women, and they're making this loud ruckus. It's obviously a show. And I said, what is going on? They said, oh, those are the mourners. And I said, oh, like in the Bible. That's, yeah, I know what that is. These are career mourners. They're actors. And they're very loud and obnoxious. They're putting on this huge display it says, when Jesus came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. 
And we understand, of course, as Christians that that's how we view death. When your body dies, you're not dead. You're sleeping. It's temporary. There's a resurrection day coming where you will have a glorified body that will join your spirit in heaven. And so that's just how Jesus sees it, and he's pointing that out. And it says they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with them. Who were they? Peter, James, and John. And he entered where the child was lying. There were two kinds of people in this room with this dead girl. The people who were desperate, that would have been her parents. And then there were the disciples, the people who were dedicated. I want to go further. I want to follow you to the ends of the earth, Jesus. I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss out. And notice he put the noisy crowd wailing outside. They weren't going to be a part of it. They didn't get to see the miracle. Right now, I see God, no matter what happens in the days to come, I'm telling you, I am telling you, no matter what happens in our nation, I fully believe that right now God is making a separation in the church between the noisy crowd wailing and the Peter, James, and Johns. Those are going to believe him for who he is and not what anyone says, not what circumstances say, not according to where the nation goes. They're going to follow him into the room where things are happening, where the dead are raised to life again. There's too much of a noisy display. I'm talking literal display right now from the church. And you know what the world sees? They see a noisy crowd wailing. Remember, these were career mourners. They're getting paid to sound like they're mourning. They didn't care a hoot about this girl. And what concerns me, church, is there are people dying. They are spiritually dead in their sins. And there's no real concern about resurrection life. These people were insincere. They were just making a loud noise for show. They were getting caught up in the moment and in the drama A ridiculous display. So ridiculous that Jesus said, get out of here. I don't even want, you can't even be a part of this. You have disqualified yourself. That was the message here. And I want to be a part of the church that realizes what's really going on. There are people who are spiritually dead. And I want to be concerned for their souls for all eternity. I want to be concerned about resurrection life in people than what's happening out there. I don't want to be a part, a part of the noisy crowd wailing. I want, to be, I want to be a part of those who get to go in to where Jesus is because you know what Jesus is doing when all this noisy crowd is wailing? He's raising the dead to life. Jesus is still in the business of raising the dead to life. And in the middle of everything that's going on right now, Jesus has not left his mission. He is still in the business of raising the dead to life. And we are either going to be a part of that with him in the inner room, or we're going to be a part of the noisy crowd wailing and completely miss it. God is calling the church right now, remember the Great Commission. Go into the world and preach the gospel, and don't forget what that is. You're spiritually dead, and you need to be raised to life again. 
And there is one who was raised to life first to be the first fruits of your resurrection. That's the message. And I'm going with that, and I'm going to follow Jesus with that message, and I'm going to do it with him. I'm going to be a part of that. Because you know what happens? Well, let's see. Verse 40, verse 41. He took the child by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha, Kumi, which means little girl, what love, what love, what great love, what great, great love. Nobody can be too dead or too gone for Jesus to take their hand. Remember, this is a corpse. By all religious standards and traditions, he is now defiling himself. But Jesus, so Jesus is okay with your dirty. He touches this corpse, and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome. Remember, who's the day? The they. Three people. Well, five, yes. They were overcome with great amazement. Later on, when we get into the book of Acts chapter 9, you can read this on your own. Peter, they come to him and they say, Peter, you, you got to come with us to, uh, was it in Joppa, I think? Peter, there's this, there's this, um, this woman named Tabitha and she just died. You gotta come, can you, will you come lay your hands on her? It says, Peter goes into her room. This is in Acts chapter 9. And this woman's dead, and there's all these women in there wailing and weeping. And, and we don't know if they are the same kind of crowd, because it says they're showing Peter all the beautiful things she had made, right? But I just wonder if he says, okay, here we go. I've been here before. See, that's what I want to do. Jesus said, the things you've seen me do, greater works than these you'll do also. But if I'm going to keep, if I'm going to be content to be a part of the noisy crowd wailing, a part of this shameful display by a church whose affections are set on this temporal kingdom, I'm not going to be part of what Jesus is doing, raising life from the dead. And so, it says they were overcome with great amazement, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. Why would he say that? Because he came to raise the dead to life. That was his mission. They wanted to set him up right there and make him an earthly Messiah, make him part of the noisy crowd wailing. <laughs> and it wasn't his time. He, had, he still had work to do, eternal work to do before he went to the cross. And he, he didn't come for what they thought he came for. And Jesus still is not here on this earth for what some of us think he's here for. He's here to raise the dead to life. That is still his mission. For he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Amen.
I confess to you this morning, and you know it's so easy to be a part of this noisy crowd wailing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've made some noise. You know, but I look at this story, and I, I just watch Jesus and what he's all about, and I realize I don't want to be a part of that crowd. I want to go where Jesus goes. I want to do the things he does. I want to be a part of an eternal mission. I, you know, I look around me, and, and it's like there, there are all around you and me right now, every day, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and yes, online, there are people who are just like that little girl. They're spiritually dead in their sins, and Jesus wants to touch them and raise them to new life. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't do this stuff alone. You realize that? He didn't have to bring Peter, James, and John with him. He could have walked in there just fine by himself and raised this girl from the dead, but he chose to include us measly, failing, weak, ridiculous human beings. You don't get more ridiculous than Peter, James, and John. Read about them. If Jesus chose them, he certainly can choose me and you. That's how he works. And he wants us to be a part of raising the dead to life. And we get to choose. Am I going to be a part of the noisy crowd wailing? insincere, unconcerned about the, the fact that people are on their way to hell. That was the noisy crowd wailing. I want to have more eternal, more eternal concerns. Concerns that drive me right into the room with Jesus. That say, yeah, I'll go, pick me. I'll go. I don't want to be a part of that. I'm going with you, Jesus. I'm with your mission. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, these are tumultuous times. Father, I confess to you that I have been a part of that noisy crowd. I have spent too much time wailing about things that don't matter in the light of eternity. Yes, we need to pray. Yes, you are very concerned for this present state of our nation. But Father God, would you help us to not fear but only believe? And would you help us to realign our belief with the only person worth believing in? It's no human no leader, no earthly leader. It's you, Jesus. Jesus, would you help us to stop fearing and put our faith fully in you? And Father God, I believe there are those here with me this morning that would say, yes, pick me. I'm tired of being a part of the noisy crowd wailing. I want to go with you, Jesus. I want to go with you, Jesus, because the only life worth living is a life that's on mission to raise the dead to life. That's the life I want. Pick me, Lord. I say yes. I say yes. We say yes.
to you, Jesus. We say yes to you. We will not be the church of the noisy crowd wailing. We will be the church by your grace where the dead are raised to life again. We will be the church that's not afraid to touch the dirty, the defiled, that's not afraid to break tradition and go where nobody else wants to go. We will be that church. We will follow you, Jesus, into the room, away from the noise. We will follow you, Jesus. We will be that church, that mighty, conquering, victorious, faith-filled, believing church. And we will cry out to dry bones, including our own today. We will cry out to dry bones. Come alive. Come alive. Come alive. The noisy crowd wailing was crying out anything but come alive to dry bones. They were dry bones themselves. We leave that behind today in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your great love for us that you have called us and chosen us and redeemed us from the foundations of the world. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. In your precious name I pray, amen. 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 You may be dismissed. Fellowship with one another. Say hi to each other. It's good to see people trickling back in. Have a good week.